On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we're going to chat about this idea that teachers should have math tests in order to keep teaching. Is it a good idea? An expert in teaching teachers talks about it. And also, there's a new study out today that is, well, it's entirely depressing, says that we are essentially killing ourselves without reading. One in five deaths around the world related to diet. What do we do about it? And how is the situation really as bad as is suggested? Well, we'll hear from that too. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Lots going on in the education world these days. You know all about the student walkout today at schools all across the province. Well, also this week, the province, the provincial government, passed legislation that will require all aspiring teachers in this province to pass a math test before they get their teaching license. And the suggestion has been made that perhaps it's a good idea if all teachers, even those who have been teaching for years and years and years, retroactively have to pass a math test in order to teach. Some think it's a great idea. Some think it's a terrible idea. The president of the union representing secondary school teachers in Ontario, uh, guess what side they're on? Ah, terrible idea, stupid. Nonsensical was the answer. But is it? Because the question that is vexing a lot of people in this province and a lot of parents is, what do we do to try and get our math scores up? Because math scores keep going down and down, and we don't seem to have the answer for this one. Well, let me bring in Mary Reed. She is the elementary coordinator in the Master of Teaching program at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. She has done lots of research and been published on the topics of math anxiety in the classroom and gender gaps in math performance, among others. Uh, she joins us now. Mary, thanks for doing this today. Well, thanks for having me. My pleasure. So on its face, before we dive into it, just on a very surface scale, the idea of having teachers take a test to establish that they can do a basic level of math before going into the classroom, good idea or bad idea? I'm going to say that there are better ways to spend money than instituting a math test systematically across our province. There's better ways to achieve professional productivity within math proficiency and math content knowledge than having a test. Which would be what? I mean, it, because obviously if, if, if the province is talking about doing the test, someone's going to have to come up with something to suggest otherwise. So if they asked you, what would you say would be the better ways? So we got to look at what the research already ha- has told us. And there's a lot of research from all across the United States, which has been doing teacher certification testing for decades now, as well as England and Wales and... We now have Australian research and, I believe, New Zealand research that shows that having um, a test has no correlation whatsoever to student achievement. So teacher test scores do not connect to student achievement, and it doesn't raise the quality of the teaching within the profession. Um, but that doesn't say that we're, we're denying there's a need for improvement in math education. There definitely is, but... The approach needs to be multifaceted. It cannot be pinpointed as teacher content knowledge as being the culprit for declining math scores. Um, For sure, I I do believe that pre-service candidates need to have their proficiency of math content knowledge refreshed and and built upon, absolutely. And there are um, much more productive and better ways. Should there be then, because now these teachers are going to now have to be able to do this, this is the new reality, whether it's good or not, 
But should there be a requirement that if you're in teacher's college, that there should be math courses along with that? So when you come out of university, you're not one of the, I think the number was 80% that was reported once a few years ago, 80% of teachers didn't take a, a math course after high school. Should that now be part of the curriculum? So it has to be done. So you come out of school being able to do math. And that is a correct statistic. It's approximately 80% of all grade three and grade six teachers based on the EQAO survey data that uh, grade three and grade six teachers fill out. And it's about 80% who have never taken a math course since high school. So um, in their undergrad, it's basically humanities or liberal arts. So that's really up to the faculties of education. And it's also part of the OCT accreditation. Currently in the jurisdiction that I work for at OISE, the Master Teaching Program, all elementary teacher candidates have to pass a Math Plus course. So this Math Plus course is based on grade 7 and 8 and some grade 9 math. It's like a math refresher course. And they have to, they do weekly homework modules, they have weekly tests, and they work together to really delve into the numeracy concepts in deep ways. And they have to have a minimum of 75% to pass the course. And we feel that a course approach will certainly support teacher candidates in a much more effective way than cramming for a test, which might give you false negatives, false positives, and it may not be sustainable what, what you study for in a test, whereas a course, you're, you're supporting the candidates based on their needs and really um, making sure that their, that their content knowledge is, is being developed on you know, throughout an entire year. The research shows that job-embedded professional development where teachers are learning from each other and they're using the research to inform their practice, that is the better way. A a math test is not going to, like what the research shows, it's not going to improve the performance of their teaching because there's no research out there that shows that. And that's in-service teachers. I think that that was a huge surprise when I read that this morning in the newspaper because it's like having to take your license all over again every single year. Why would you need to do that? Well, let me throw one wrinkle into this, because I, I get your point, absolutely, that if we can have this as part of the curriculum when teachers come out of teacher's college, that they have this built in, that's a better, that makes a lot of sense, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. The the tr- the difficult part about this is there are teachers right now who maybe, I don't know, five years, 10 years into their teaching career, they could have 25 years left they don't have the math skills because they never had to have this as part of their curriculum. And so their student, they may not be good at math. They may not have the, the, those abilities. What do we do with them then in those years that they have to teach? They're not getting it when they come in, but if we don't have a test now or some way to encourage them or force them to get their math, how do we, how do their students not suffer? So the, the professional productivity is maximized within a teacher's first five to eight years. So we know that there's lots of learning happening. And if math is going to be one of their professional goals, then definitely a test is not going to allow them to achieve the professional productivity that other learning opportunities can help them achieve, such as the job-embedded PD of working with other teachers and watching other teachers in action who are masters in in teaching mathematics and learning from them and really supporting each other. That's how we want to support um, 
in-service teachers currently, which is what the research shows, research from my institution as well as research from all over the world, where there is a focus on job-embedded professional development. And again, makes sense. Uh, is it your belief that most, if not all, teachers, given that opportunity, will take it? Again, what if if you have a teacher who has finished their university, and, and many of them have, 80%, something like that, have not had math, uh, if you were to say, you know what, we're not going to give you a test, but we expect that within five years you will have taken X, Y, and Z courses in order to be able to do this. Do most do that? Well, I could tell you statistically that the math additional qualification courses are the second most popular from our institution, um, second to special education. And that's where the needs are. That's where our priorities are. So our teachers in Ontario are taking professional development courses such as AQ, additional qualification courses, paying money out of their own pocket. They're about six to $800 for each um, certification level that you take in order to become better teachers in special education, in mathematics. So those are the two most popular AQ subject areas right now, and they are doing it. They, they, they are pursuing professional goals and trying to be the best teachers they can um, based on the needs of the, their students as well as based on, on the needs of the province. So let me ask you the question that I know that the time we have is not nearly enough to allow you to answer this because it's just way too complicated, I understand, but I have to ask it. The EQAO scores have been dropping and dropping and dropping in math. Uh, If we have the teachers who are taking these programs and they're bettering themselves in their capabilities and capacities to teach math, why are the scores of the students then going down? So we want to reverse the scores. And for me, my research shows that Developing the proficiency of pre-service teachers is definitely an area that we can improve on, and we've got our new course that we're doing in the Master Teaching Program. But my research also shows the reasons why proficiency levels aren't at the rate that we want them to be. And one of the major reasons is those affective variables, those sociocultural factors, factors such as emotions and attitudes towards math. They play a huge role and how we feel about math. If you're anxious every time you do math or are you know, thinking about numbers or problem solving, those dispositions can really impact your trajectory in, into high school and post-secondary. So we need to, as a society, not accept dispositions like, okay, I'm not a math person. Everyone has the potential to be mathematicians, to be math people. So I think we need to look at the problem and the declining EQAO scores from a societal perspective as well, not just from this proficiency level of teachers. It is a fascinating topic. Uh, this will not be uh, the last time people hear about it for sure, because this is, a, I'm sure this is, I was going to say a discussion, I think probably a war is a better <laughs> word that's going to be going on for some time. The teacher negotiations are coming up this fall. Uh, this may be one of the things they talk about. I'm not sure, but Mary, I, I have a feeling this may be something that's, part of the discussions. Uh, listen, Mary Reed, really appreciate the time as always. Thanks for doing this today. Thank you. My pleasure. Bye-bye. It is, it is one of the most complicated topics to talk about. How do we get the EQAO? The, ultimately, the EQAO scores are the measure. And are they down because of, well, Mary says a lot of other factors, but is it teaching? Is it students doing something different? It, what is going on and how do we make those better?
And this is part of the discussion. It, if we make teachers take a test to show they're better at math, will that bring up EQAO scores? She says no. Some people say yes. Who knows? She's the expert. But pro- who knows if we're ever going to find out because who knows if these tests are ever going to happen? We'll know. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. This was on Facebook this week, and it's brilliant. Somebody found a letter, piece of paper that they, that their mother back in 1968, so they would be 50 years old today, their mother had been given this letter in the maternity ward at the hospital when the, when this person was born. And it was the guidelines for your behavior as a new mother in the maternity ward. This is the, these were the rules. This was a North Carolina hospital, but you know what? I bet you that this was probably kind of standard practice around many hospitals of the time, 50 years ago, not exactly the way we do things today. Here are the rules that the mother was given. It mentions the baby's name and the time of birth and the weight and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the rules that the mother has. Under the explanation, the routine of this department is to safeguard you and your baby. I almost feel like it should be said with a thick accent of some kind. I don't know which accent. Some, some very stern accent. Eastern European, just a very stern accent. Instructions. Babies are on display at nursery window from 2.30 to 3.30 p.m. and 7 to 7.45 p.m. Please do not ask to see the baby at other times. Your baby will be on display for one and a half hours a day. That's it. Don't bug us about you seeing your baby, your child, your offspring. That's it. And I love the fact that they don't really use proper grammar. It's very terse. Baby will come to mother for feeding 9 to 10 a.m., 1 to 2 p.m., 5.30 to 6.30 p.m., 9 to 10 p.m. Period. Underline, no visitor is allowed on floor or in room during nursing periods, including father, underline, father. Dad could not be there because it would be upsetting if dad were to see a boob, you know, during nursing. Because he surely would not have seen such a thing during the making of the baby. So you can't have dad in there when the nursing is going on. How offensive. Uh, number three, well, this one makes sense. Do not smoke while baby is in the room. All right. Even back 50 years ago, they were catching on that that may not be a good idea. Of course, smoke all you want in the car on the way home while the baby is driving without a car seat on mom's lap. That's okay. Number four, do not allow visitors to sit on your bed. The bed linen must be kept clean for the baby. Well, I suppose if you have a bunch of, you know, really filthy people who just came from feeding the pigs, that would be true. Do not cover your baby with your linen. Yes, please do not suffocate your child in your bed. That's good, good advice. Regards to nursing, during the first 24 hours, allow baby to nurse five minutes only. On second and third days, allow baby to nurse approximately seven minutes. On fourth and fifth days, allow baby to nurse approximately 10 to 15 minutes. And in capital letters, do not eat chocolate candy, raw apple, cabbage, nuts, strawberries, cherries, onions, or green coconut cake. I was all okay up until that point as far as getting this one because, you know, onions the baby, it's going to, it's going to be, there's going to be some flavor through the breast milk. I get that part. Some certain nuts. Well, there may be allergies, cabbage, same thing. 
Does green coconut cake not seem a little weird, weirdly specific in, in that list? I don't know if in 1968, green coconut cake was a big thing. Maybe it was the thing that I don't know about that was the real fad of the day. But uh, in regards to bottling your baby, which I think they mean feeding with a bottle, not actually bottling your child. I'm hoping anyway, maybe this was something else in 1968 I'm not aware of. We're going to can or bottle your child before taking it home. Um, after removing the nipple cap, please see that the nipple, and again, we're talking with a bottle here, does not touch bed linen or anything else. It should remain clean and not become contaminated. Yes. Well, that's probably good as well, but yeah, very, very specific. Now, if you have a baby now, and again, it's been a few years since we had ours, what they kind of say is, yeah, do what you want. Just don't hurt the baby. Do what you want. Pass it around. Feed it whenever. Sleep with it whenever. Yeah, it's all good. But the green coconut cake, I got to research that one. Seems very weird. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. So this new study comes out today, and we talk about studies every once in a while on this show. Some of them are very interesting. This one, though, uh, pretty depressing. I mean, it is pretty darn depressing what this study is saying. And it's a huge study. We'll get into some of the numbers shortly, but it's a huge, massive study. And I mean, with most studies, the bigger they are, you would think you would expect that the greater the accuracy. I think we can probably in this case say that's the, that's true here. Uh, one out of every five people. So in other words, one out of every five people listening to this show right now, is eating so poorly that you are killing yourself with your diet. Think about that. You are killing yourself with your diet. Not necessarily today, not tomorrow, but you are doing enough damage to your body that you are destroying it just by what you're eating. One in five deaths around the planet right now are linked to poor diet. Now here's the numbers. This study looked at 195 countries over a 27-year period. That's a lot of people looking at the cause of death of the people who were there. Now, I would have guessed that when you start to look at 195 countries over that period of time, a lot of these, when you talk about diet, a lot of these would have come from malnutrition or lack of food altogether. That exists, of course, but the leading contributors were cardiovascular disease followed by cancer and type 2 diabetes, not malnutrition, not starvation. Those are obviously issues. Those are, we're not poo-pooing those things. Those are very important. Cardiovascular disease followed by cancer and type 2 diabetes, things that are caused by our eating. Let me bring in Dr. Stuart Phillips. He is a kinesiology prof at McMaster. He's also the director of the McMaster Center for Nutrition, Exercise, and Health Research. He joins us now. Doctor, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure, Scott. Thanks for having me on the show. Any of that stuff that uh, that we talk about and that you've looked at today, any of this catch you by surprise? Um, I, I don't know if it caught me by surprise. Uh, the, the numbers are certainly compelling and, and paint, as you said, a pretty, uh, a pretty bleak picture. Um, I think most people are aware, but this is, this is putting some real uh, hard data to the point. Well, you, you, I think it's... You can't always judge a book by its cover, certainly, but if you look around our society, you look around the world and you see how many people are now carrying the weight that they are, you would certainly, even someone who is a skeptic would have to say, we're probably not doing good things to ourselves. 
Yeah, and, and I think it's um, it, it's beyond the weight now. We're looking at more sort of nuanced factors to do with the quality of the foods that people are eating, uh, their overconsumption of nutrients like sodium, their underconsumption of whole grains, uh, and their underconsumption of things like fruits and vegetables. So, as you mentioned, those chronic diseases, heart disease, cancer, type 2 diabetes, claim a lot of lives. And in Canada, uh, cancer and heart disease are numbers one and two. So it's, Really? You know, we're not hiding here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, everybody knows now, you, nobody is immune from having heard that too much fast food isn't good for us. I mean, I don't think anyone's saying don't ever eat fast food, but too much is not good for us. Uh, too much pop isn't good for us. Too much red meat isn't good for us. Too much whatever. And yet we continue to do it. Why? Yeah, I, I mean, it's a good question, and I think that there's probably a lot of very, you know, layered answers. But the one thing that people have to realize is that if you're not buying foods that, as I like to say, sit around the outside of the grocery store, so generally uh, fruit and produce up one aisle, uh, meat and dairy down the other, and then sort of baked goods down the other, if you're eating too many foods that are in the middle aisles, you're eating essentially contrived or concocted foods. And so, you know, most of those foods, um, let's face it, they, they taste good. And uh, people uh, earn a living being taste scientists, if you like, and trying to get people sort of hooked on these types of foods. So um, that, that's, a, that's a simple game. And uh, we know what sort of things give us pleasure. And uh, we're, if you like, manipulated in that way. Well, th- this study, th- they had all kinds of graphics and, and graphs and everything else, and it was really interesting to look because we in North America, and I don't think this is a surprise to anyone, lead the world in the consumption of processed meats, sugary drinks, trans fats, and we're right near the top in sodium. Very predictable, right? Exactly, yeah. I, I, and again, I don't think that that uh, surprises anybody. We always like to think as Canadians that we're a little bit different from Americans, and in some senses we are, but um, frankly, uh, all the graphs, that, as you mentioned and alluded to in that paper, um, we're right behind the United States in all of these things, and we're heading in, the, in, in exactly the same direction. So is it, you, you refer to the taste. Is it exclusively the fact that it tastes good, or is a big part of it now that... I'll give two options on this one, either that we're really busy or really lazy. Yeah, it's a good question. I I mean, I I think that it's interesting to um, look at some of the recommendations that came out in the most recent revisions in Canada's food guide that for the first time uh, made the recommendation that people try and spend time preparing their food and eating at home and eating around the table as a family. And um, I think if you did a quick survey of some of, uh, you know, people who have kids, they would talk about how busy they are and would say that they just don't do that. But we we know that people have, they, they you know, I don't have time, I don't have time. And so convenience foods and fast foods and uh, easy to prepare foods are uh, readily available and um, a lot of times aren't as nutritious as as the real food themselves if you prepared it in your own kitchen. But people just don't do that. So... I don't know if I would say lazy, but I would definitely say that people uh, are feeling a time pressure. Well, it, it, it did dawn on me when I'm asking the question about whether it's taste or whether it's just laziness. Are there any fast food tofu places? 
Yeah, it's a I, good I, observation. Yeah. I mean, it, so there has to, the taste part. I mean, it obviously it does taste good, and that's obviously a big, big, big part of it. But and I'm not a fan of tofu, by the way. I wouldn't be shopping. I wouldn't be shopping at the fast food. But the point is, those things that may be good for us, even if they cost more, it doesn't seem like they are readily accessible, even as a fast food option. No, and and yet if you go to the other side of the Pacific and spend time in Asia, there's plenty of people eating tofu in various different ways that we probably wouldn't consider here. So, I mean, I think you have to turn a few things on its head and say that, you know, it's probably cultural and specific to the environment that we live in. Uh, we're, we're under the tremendous influence, obviously, of uh, people in the United States and the food industry there. So, I mean, I think that um, it's a combination probably of things that taste great, that are readily available, um, and maybe there aren't as many other options. And so that's, uh, I think, part of the point about reports like this and, and emphasis on whole grains, fruits, and vegetables, and essentially what I just call real food mm. and not contrived food. It's the opposite of Miller Lite. It tastes great and it's more filling. Yeah, that's exactly. In fact, a, a phrase that's um, often used by... Um, people is to say that we're now overnourished mm. and yet we have under nutrient in certain uh, categories if you like so we're uh, we're eating far too much and we're not getting the nutrients that we need so it really does speak to foods that are sort of energy dense and rather nutrient poor well you speak what you just said is I think the twist in this study because the I think the expectation whenever you hear a study like this or read a study like this is that they are simply going to say you're eating too much crap you're eating too much fatty food and all the rest of the stuff which is in here but the thing it's saying is that the real problem is that the crap is taking the place of what we really need, that we're not only overeating bad food, we're under eating that good food that you're talking about. That's what it's really pointing to here, that we're not getting enough of the stuff we really need. Yeah, I know exactly. I mean, it's a food displacement issue and uh, a lot of people have railed for a lot of years about liquid calories and from sugar-sweetened beverages, for example, as being entirely uh, a mixture essentially of sugar and water and giving you and offering you no nutritive benefit whatsoever, but they offer you energy, they, uh, they fill you up, they suppress your appetite, and so as a result, you don't eat the foods that you need and don't then get the nutrients that you need. So uh, it's, a, it's a real problem. It is difficult, though, even if you're trying right now, and there are people who are definitely trying, it is difficult sometimes, I would suggest, to try and do the good diet because so much of the food that we buy, they have hidden stuff in it that we don't even know we're getting. Look, I mean, I, I think the, the rider with all of these conversations is that it's very easy to talk about eating healthier, um, but in honesty and, and, and in truth, to make changes in the way that you eat and, and in your dietary patterns and even your purchasing patterns in grocery stores is, is difficult. I, I would be the first person to admit that. Um, I do think that, and, and probably, you know, in, in us talking on this show, we can both admit that it's it's worth the effort, but it is effort. And, and so, you know, a lot of times people talk about, I only have so much time and energy to spare and, you know, food, oh, you know, who can... But um, uh, as this report points out, I mean, if one in five people are, are 
dying from diseases that are related to dietary habits, then uh, we need to stand up and uh, pay attention to this. Well, it requires us to change are a lot of things, but also our tastes. And, and look, I, I don't want to be saying, I don't want people to be thinking I'm preaching here because I am the worst at this. If I've got a bag of carrots in the fridge and I've got a bag of chips on top of the fridge, I can tell you which one I'm probably going to go to first. And it requires that we would entirely change what we find tasty, I would think, to really change our diet. Well, and, and, and I think your example right there points to a, a degree of uh, manipulation of, of your own taste habits. I mean, as you said, if you're faced with the choice of uh, a fresh vegetable and versus a bag of potato chips, then you opt for the potato chips. So we love that salt. Uh, we love the, the fat that's coated in, in, on, on the uh, potato chips. And, you know, you're a victim um, falling prey to exactly what I had said before. So I think that, you know, we have to realize that things like salt and sweet are part of our basic taste sensation. And they light up areas in our brain that say, you know, this is good. You know, it tastes good. You like this. Uh, whereas a carrot might not do it for, well, not for everybody, but, but certainly not for maybe the majority of people. So, um, yeah, we have to begin to think a little bit more about eating rather than what what's called mindlessly eating. Mm. We'll try more and more for mindful eating. And so to make a concerted effort to to eat the things that probably all of us know intrinsically are good for us. But it's more expensive too, right? Um, I, I don't know that I would agree with that, but um, I think one of the statistics I like to say is that you know, fully about 50% of um, all food that's now purchased in Canada is purchased outside of the home and is consumed within about 30 minutes of purchase. So that must mean that it's it's fast food in nature, um, which I don't know that there's too many people that would argue that what you could get at a fast food restaurant, you could probably prepare and buy yourself from the grocery store at a cheaper price. It can be more expensive, but it depends entirely on the choices that you make. So I still say to people that if you can take the time to stop and, and shop around the outside of the grocery store, you're going to arrive home with a basket full of food that's a lot better for you than shopping down the inside. And the, probably the two of them combined are better for you than going out to a fast food restaurant. Is the ice cream around the outside of the store? <laughs> yeah, the ice cream <laughs> tends to be in the middle. And, oh, and, and darn. like a lot of things, too, is... I mean, I think that most uh, lifestyle changes are difficult, uh, whether we're talking about, you know, exercise or diet, for example. But the the main point is, is that, you know, you still have to enjoy some of the things that you enjoy, which is, you know, and I can't get on your show and not mention a little bit about exercise. So uh, most people say, what do you exercise for? And I say, I exercise now so that I can enjoy a piece of cake and, and, and not have to feel too bad about it. Well, now you're, you're not a politician. Uh, so, th- I mean, I'm going to put you a, a little bit on the spot because this is really not your wheelhouse, but there have been people over the years who have suggested, you know what, this is becoming such a health issue now and so costly to our system that we should be adding taxes to our junk foods the same way we tax cigarettes or booze that get at higher levels of taxes than other things do. Do you agree with that concept? If you go ahead and do it, but you're going to pay for it. Right. So, so there's, there's actually been a few studies and uh, the state of New York and a few other places have sort of flirted with a sugar-sweetened beverage tax, for example, 
Um, most of the research and the data that come back actually show that that doesn't do anything to people's consumption. So I'm not sure that it's it works. It's a little bit different from alcohol uh, and tobacco, which you would obviously argue are not necessities, but are sort of the, the so-called sin goods, is that, you know, um, we could place a tax on them, feel okay about doing it, but taxing food has a sort of a different connotation. Um, my opinion is, is that it, 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 this is going to require policy change, so it will come down to some degree of political will, but it's probably around um, advertising, particularly advertising to children, uh, which I think is needs to be curbed, and, uh, and then probably a, a degree of consumer education. So I'm not so sure that the, the taxation is the answer because most of the data out there shows that doesn't work in the case of most foods. See, I, I'm looking at it as it, whether it works, whether it deters people from buying it. I, I mean, you pointed out that it, there may be evidence that it doesn't. But if we're having to pay extra medical bills, I would be totally okay if the if someone, the government or stores or whatever, were to say, look, we're going to drop the HST or whatever completely on healthy foods and increase it on unhealthy foods. So if you buy a bag of carrots, there's no tax on that. And if you buy a bag of chips, there's double the tax on that. I'd be okay with that. Yeah, you know, interestingly, a lot of other people have come up with a similar concept is that, you know, if you could devise what uh, what would be a sort of a standard sort of healthy grocery basket of foods is that there would be no tax on them and there would be tax on other things. I'm not so sure I agree about taxing more tax on other certain foods. Uh, I think that people will still go out and buy them anyway. I, I don't know that it would change, but um, I, I again, it's probably a quite a diverse set of opinions you'd have on what it is that taxation means to Canadians and then how much it would change their habits vis-a-vis something uh, that's a staple uh, such as food. And, and it's interesting and, you know, I think it's relevant in the context of Hamilton to point out that there are plenty of people in this city um, who are struggling in terms of income. True. Uh, and so then you look to say, well, what can I buy for the dollars that I have It'll put food in the tummies of the kids that I have sitting in front of me. So that then becomes a, a pretty difficult question to answer. And um, true enough, you know, you'd like to think that people would make the right uh, choices, but sometimes not easy. As long as they never up the tax on ice cream, we're all good. <laughs> it's all natural, right? It's just cream and sugar and chocolate yeah, chips it, it or it something. Would be the wrong time for me to mention. <laughs> I, I don't eat ice cream. But, uh, <laughs> And that is Dr. Stuart Phillips, Mac, uh, McMaster Kinesiology Professor, Director of the McMaster Center for Nutrition, Exercise, and Health Research. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. No problem. My pleasure, Scott. I am suddenly starving for ice cream. <laughs> Won't do it. Can't do it now. That would be wrong. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.